0: I'm Mike Sheridan, and this is The Delve. Hey there, you're welcome along to another episode of The Delve with me, Mike Sheridan. Alex Holder is a documentary filmmaker who has been making a lot of headlines of late. He recently appeared before US Congress when it emerged. He had footage of Donald Trump and members of his family in and around the January 6th insurrection, as well as the aftermath and lead up to the 2020 election. That footage ultimately became the remarkable docuseries, Unprecedented, where Alex has access to the Trump family and not only the most vulnerable, but at the most chaotic time in recent US history. The three-part series is available to watch on Discovery+, Plus, which you can subscribe to for 4 dollars a month with a week's free trial. It's worth signing up for the free trial just to watch this series. Enjoy the conversation with Alex, and remember to like, subscribe, comment, or review, depending on if you're watching this on YouTube or listening as a podcast. Have you seen it? I have seen it. I actually I signed up myself on Sunday and watched it. Um, like it's, it's one of those as well, because I've, you've been so engulfed in it. Is it difficult to kind of step outside it?
1: Um, well, I think I'm still in it. <laughs> that's the thing, right? It hasn't ended. You know, it's like this entire process has just been ongoing for like essentially two years. I mean, we delivered the, we only finished the project a couple of a few months ago, and then thinking, okay, that's it, it's done, you know, we sort of you know delivered our you know, our child essentially to the broadcaster, and then and then and then literally the subpoena from Congress, and obviously my, my life blew up and and uh, and here we are. So um so in some ways it hasn't really ended for me.
0: So I was I was looking, I think it was Tarper that tweeted uh, it was your documentary, you had made the documentary, and I think you had a couple hundred Twitter Twitter followers at the time, and you're at what 17. <laughs> and you're at what 40 <laughs> something thousand or something like that now. So how surreal has it been for you for the past, I think, well, past, say, month or so in particular with the subpoenas? Do you feel like you're in the bit of a whirlwind still?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, literally, it's, uh, yeah. And, and of those 117 Twitter followers, the majority of them are my family. <laughs> so, yeah it, wasn't, yeah, it wasn't really real. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's been crazy. I mean, being recognized, um, you know, sort of, and, and, and then the reactions and obviously some positive, some abusive, um, and uh, it's, it's obviously something to get used to. I mean, having to have security. Uh, I I haven't driven a car. I actually realised this yesterday. I haven't driven a car in about in almost a month, which is crazy. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's been something to, uh, to get used to. But at the same time, it's also amazing to be able to really talk about it and to hear people's reactions to it and explore what the series is and, and obviously you now because of January 6 and the committee hearings there was this feeling that the film the series was this January 6 project and, and whilst January 6 is obviously an incredibly important part of the series and, and the the story that we're telling the series is also more about the family dynamics and the inter sort of the relationships between the three children and, and the father
0: I don't think a lot of people get the process. I've, I've made a couple of documentaries as well. I don't think a lot of people get the process that goes into interviewing people in these documentaries. So, I mean, I would find, and I would imagine you're quite similar, is that you want people to be as comfortable as they can be, and you can get something that you can then piece together for the documentary. But that seems to be something I think even some of the media don't seem to get when they're asking you whether, did you challenge Donald Trump on this? Did you challenge Donald Trump Jr. on that when... In reality, all the footage you're going to have then is somebody standing up and walking out <laughs> you're not going to have anything for your documentary.
1: Exactly. And also, it would be more about me. And this isn't about me. Uh, but there's actually two reasons that I, uh, I have. It. I mean, one is what you said before, which is that long-form documentary is about sort of the maintenance of access and trying to sort of build a relationship with these people, like with the people, with the contributors you're, you're you're making a film about. So that's number one. And, and the second is also that My approach is not to be prosecutorial and not to be combative. The simple reason is that I want to capture these moments of, of history, in a sense, right? As in what is going through these people's minds at this particular time when you're asking them this particular question. And so the idea of potentially changing people's minds or diluting what they're saying in that moment, because I don't agree with what they're saying, seems to be sort of counterintuitive, isn't it? Especially when you're interviewing the president of the United States of America, a month after the most consequential election in American history and it's the last interview he he ever gave as president so like that that, that was important to sort of just capture for posterity for, for history for the record and then there's actually a third reason as well which is really true and that is you know D- Donald Trump is not really a rational player when it comes to things that he has positions on essentially as in he he, he is not he is unwilling to to move and to be uh, persuaded and then, and the simple proof of that is you know, four or five days before I interviewed him in the White House, his own attorney general had given a public statement to Associated Press saying that there was absolutely no evidence to support any of the claims that President Trump was making about the election. So the idea that this British guy with 117 Twitter followers (laughs) that no one's ever heard of before is going to, in the White House diplomatic reception room, with, you know, all the apparatus, the presidency around me and him, that I'm going to change this guy's mind. I mean, it's also slightly ludicrous. So all that happens is that you end up having this debate with with him. He refuses to move because you know, he's just, the sky is green. And, and then you waste all your time and you don't actually get to explore any other of the other points. But also you don't get to sort of explore what is going on you know, in his mind and, and what he really believes in you know, during these incredibly important moments in history. So, Yeah, I think there's a multitude of reasons and I think the the American media um, techniques are different and they want to have more of a sort of, whether it's a conversational or a more combative approach. And also there's different types of journalistic um, mentalities as well, especially when you're interviewing for a newspaper or sort of more short form content, whereas as we said before, for long term, or long form content, it's, it's a slightly different approach. But those are sort of my overall sort of reasons and rationale behind it.
0: So you were there at a point when it was particularly chaotic, both before and after. What was it like when you were forced in the White House? I would imagine it was quite surreal for you personally, but in terms of what you could capture and what was it like just to be there and miss all of that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it was definitely chaos. And I think that one of the things that was really interesting was um, is a, I I'd never interviewed a president of the United States before. And I'd been to the White House a few times prior to this interview, but essentially it was the first time I, you know, I'd be, i been to the White House as well. And so the, the things that happened to me were were sort of normal, i.e. normal because I hadn't really got anything to compare it to. I mean, the closest thing I had to compare you know, my experiences to was, you know, Aaron Sorkin's West Wing, right? <laughs> like I said, I, I, I there was just nothing else. It was absolutely crazy. So, But when you think about it, especially now in light of all the things that happened, and, and and especially when you take stock of, of the things that were going on, it, it was crazy. I mean, the simple reason of me being there. I mean, it was just absolutely uh, remarkable. And, uh, and and there was this feeling of... The, the key thing that I did notice at the time, which was very interesting, was that the President Trump's people around him were terrified of him. And that was very interesting because there is a, a respect that I I know anyone would have towards the president or, or prime minister or king or, or whatever, right? Like there's obviously a, a respect that that position holds. But this was more than respect. This was an awkward, tense, very uncomfortable feeling uh, when... I, when I saw the people around him and interacted, it was more. It was it was far more than deferential. It was standoffish, which was really interesting to see. And and he's a very imposing guy. I mean, he's, he's very big. He's, he's he's loud. So there's, I'm sure there's that as well. But yeah, I, and there was also dissent amongst those around him in terms of what he was doing, which was also fascinating as well. So and remember, I'm doing this in real time. So like, this isn't with the with all the things that have come out recently you know, these are all being put together now by this by this, the, the investigation it's sort of like this massive jigsaw puzzle and they're finding all the pieces and putting it all together whereas i was watching some of those pieces unfolding as they were happening which is really interesting as well so uh, but yeah i mean it, it was definitely a chaotic experience for sure
0: Perfect, i would imagine and i love that you mentioned the succession vibes because I watched the show um, with my girlfriend before I watched any interviews with you. And I was delighted that you mentioned that because even with the music at the start of it, and then the real focus, I mean, you may, you may, the doc, I didn't, but tell me if I'm wrong, but the real focus to me felt like the three kids and the dynamics between the three kids and the very different personalities that the three kids have. And I thought that was incredibly enlightening when you're on the road with them. I would have watched, a full episode, an hour or two of you just been on the road with one of the kids just to get a little, just to get more under their skin, but obviously you couldn't just do that. Did you build relationships with the them Because I know Ivanka, for instance, is very, she's very polished. Eric is a little bit guarded and Don Jr. is like, fuck it. <laughs> that meme with the, with the papers in the air. Did you have to build relationships with relationships with them first in order to get them to open up a little bit?
1: I think so I mean I think there were but, you know, this is a family that have been in the media since they, they've essentially been alive right I mean that they have been in it when they wanted to be in it and they've been in it when they haven't wanted to be in it and I mean Mbunker, for example has been in sort of a celebrity since she was a very young child she was a model and, and you know, she sort of experienced that so what was really interesting and, and this is now, a lot of people said, you know, our approach was could, could be seen as humanising them. And, and I always laughed at that, because I said, well, actually, I know it's a bit of a shock, but they are actually human, <laughs> which is yeah, quite, quite, sort of, that people don't fully understand. I, I think, if anything, they themselves try to sort of put it on this facade, which removes some of that humanity. And I think that, and they think that's what they need to do, which is really interesting, when in fact, I think when they do show uh, aspects of their realness, let's say, that's the really fascinating part, which does make people say, hang on a second, that's, that's quite interesting. And so, yeah, we, we did, I mean, there's a limit to how much of a relationship you can build with people like this, right? And where their worldview is really centered around one thing, which is, it's all about Trump. It's all about the brand. So you, you sort of need to indulge in that to be able to sort of get closer to them and, and, and the truth is that you know it, it it's actually quite sad because I actually think they don't have that many friends because of the way that they've grown up and, and the importance of what the brand is and, and you know saving dad at all costs and you know, doing whatever they can to achieve the end goal which is you know to, to promote the brand so it, they, they, they are they are unusual because even in those real moments, you still see this utter focus of your know, appearance of, again, just keeping that brand alive and supporting it and doing everything you can for it. So, uh, so yeah, it, 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 was, uh, it was definitely interesting interacting with them, you know, both on and off camera.
0: It's also interesting watching them interact with people at the rallies because it's the closest thing you're going to get to kind of normal people that they would interact with in the daily lives of people that aren't necessarily on the Trump payroll or whatever that might be. Um, how, how do you feel, how do you think they have this connection? Maybe not necessarily them, I know Trump mentions it's his base, ultimately he says that, which says a lot about Trump. But how do they have this connection? How does this family, just from somebody who's observed it, how do they have this connection with Essentially, a lot of working class American people. It seems like such a contradiction.
1: Sure. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the, the typical demagogue, right? The typical populist, which is I'm going to give you the right to say all the things that you think aloud, right? And not only am I going to give you the right to say these things aloud, I'm going to say them aloud as well. And yeah, you know, and I want to show you that I really like you and everything, all your problems, I'm going to be able to, to fix without actually giving any ways of being able to fix them. I'm going to fix them. Like all these very complicated issues in America, like, no, nah, they're not complicated. You've been ignored. We're going to, we're going to do that. And, and I think this approach was obviously very attractive. I mean, it is attractive. And we've seen how attractive it is over, over history. So I think that's, that's one. Two is that Donald Trump is just, he is brilliant at being able to, uh, you know, attract, he, he, he's just brilliant at being able to, to, sh- to connect to people in a way which is very, it's very instinctive. It's not thought through by him. He, he, can, he needs audience adoration, right? That's his drug. So when he's on the stage and he's hearing the cheers and the applause, And then, like, the volume of it goes down slightly. He pivots brilliantly to another topic, completely a a non-sequitur to what he was saying before, which he knows will then just re-energise and just get that noise and that reaction back again. So he's very, very good at sort of manipulating and playing with the emotions of the crowd. He's just, he is very good at it. And that's why when you watch him on these rallies and you sort of hear these speeches, and it goes off script, and then suddenly everything's all jumbled up. But there is actually not a logic in his mind, but a logic in the sense that he's trying to get a reaction from the crowd. If it doesn't work, he'll move somewhere else. That could be completely, totally unconnected. And the kids have similar... I mean, certainly Don Jr. has a very similar approach and is able to really rile up the crowd with some of these very bombastic, also cruel comments. So, for instance, you know, that. The, the, the hubris the family had the beginning when I started working with them was that they, you know, they were going to win the 2020 election. It will be a repeat of 2016. We're going to prove them all wrong again. The polls are wrong. The pulses are wrong. And the main line that Don Junior would, would say at all his rallies was, let's make liberals cry again, which was his way of repeating back. You now, obviously, when Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 and people are crying because of that sort of surprise defeat, he wanted to you know that was his way of of joking, I guess, you know, to his crowd that he was, they were gonna repeat this again, they were going to make liberals cry again. But there, there were other things as well that they would say, which were all very belligerent and that the rhetoric was clear. And I think that people, you know, people have passions and, and people are, do have real issues. And here was somebody that was articulating those issues in a very strong manner. And they were able to, uh, to connect to those issues.
0: And I love how you set up the interviews with Trump himself because it's a very difficult thing when you're interviewing a sitting president of the United States or former president to get them to open up in any way that might be different where you show them footage of the kids campaigning for him, Did anything about his reaction to the footage surprise you?
1: Absolutely. And I think that that is, I think, a unique moment. I, I don't think there's ever been a moment of Trump you know, receiving an iPad, watching his own kids campaigning for him and then filming this silence, but seeing his face, the, the, sort of these reactions, very close up reactions of, what he, of what's going through his mind. And you know, I don't want to sort of say what, uh, what audiences should feel because it's really interesting in terms of the difference of opinions in terms of what he's showing. But what did surprise me was there's this little moment when I hand him the iPad where he almost doesn't want to take it. And then what he says, and then you mentioned before, was that yeah, they've got their own base, but it's really part of my base. And I think that's astonishing for a father to say, uh, because like what you're taking away your kids' accomplishments perhaps, or there's sort of elements of envy in, in, you know, in one's child. So that was a very interesting reaction, which, which definitely surprised me. But certainly the, the reactions, and the, the, his facial reactions that he has towards his kids throughout the series, I think is just fascinating. Because it shows that there is something there beyond the yeah, sort of the bluster and, and and in a lot of cases the insanity.
0: Well you show another moment as well where i do not want to be giving too much away for people, but you show another moment where Don Jr. is interviewing him for something and kind of takes a piss a little bit, where he goes, Who's your favorite who's your favorite kid? Moise Zelvanke? And you can see for a second he almost breaks character for a second. And that so I mean do you think they have that kind of relationship where the kids can rib them a little bit? Maybe then you can't fire his kids.
1: Well, <laughs> I mean, well, I wouldn't be surprised if, if he, uh, if, I mean, I think if, if anyone could, it probably would be him. Right. Um, but if you, in that little clip that you just mentioned, you see Don's face after he finishes the, the joke and he has this like nervous laugh, like he's, he sort of—that's uh, at least what I felt—was that there was this like nervous laughter to ribbing his dad, which I thought was really quite interesting. Um, but uh, look, I'm sure there are uh, some you know, elements of 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 that kind of behaviour and attitude in the family. But when you hear them speaking about, like Ivanka talks about how her father was not a father like in the, in, the, in the conventional manner, right? Or you know, he was sort of he was present but then when you actually sort of hear or see the reality he's not really present right like he would be with his kids in the office having a meeting and the kid would be playing lego on their own and he is you know doing some some business deal. so um so i think they have an unusual and different uh type of relationship for sure
0: and i don't want to keep you too much longer alex I very much appreciate the time you were there on january 6th so you were there for the day and you weren't with Trump per se, um, just to experience that, just to experience the, because we all watched it on TV and we all saw how horrific it was and the reverberation of that even now, to be there in the day and to see that going down and to see the how serious it got and how seriously escalated, what's going through your head as somebody who's been filming with these people, with the president, with the family uh, from months previous?
1: I mean, it was it was this tragic but inevitable result, right? I mean, we predicted it was going to happen. I predicted it the night before. I said to Michael, my director of photography, I said, uh, we were in an elevator on the 5th. And uh, I said to him, you know, Trump's going to make the all march on the Capitol tomorrow. And we sort of half laughed because it was such a crazy thing to, to say. But it was just the inevitable consequence. Trump had this ridiculous idea that he could intervene in the ceremonial process of counting the certification votes. And he thought he could get Mike Pence to to stop it and, and remain in power, and he brought all you know, all these people, all his supporters from all over the country, to to come and, and protest and march on this specific uh, on the specific day you know, to the capital where it was all taking place, and all the you know, crazy things that had been taking place sort of the weeks earlier and during the campaign. It just it was like it was obvious it was going to explode. I mean, at the end of the day, when you tell 75 million people their vote didn't count and you're the president of the United States of America, like, what what, what does anyone think is going to happen next? I mean, it's obviously going to be a disaster and, and incredibly bad. But being there, and even though you sort of expect it and seeing it, it was absolutely terrifying. I mean, Michael, who was on the steps of the Capitol and captures the most remarkable, horrific moments, including the death of one of the protesters and... the the bleeding, uh, I mean, Trump supporters bleeding and and injured and, and, uh, and attacking the police and throwing spears and and wooden planks and flags and, you know, into, like, into, into the the United States Parliament, right? But this is by Americans. So it's Americans attacking their own Parliament. it, It just, it was, it really is quite horrific when you think about it. And then obviously being there, it was, it was tragic. It was very, very sad. And, yeah, we—it's we, quite difficult to comprehend, actually, uh, and that's what we try and make you know, in in the series, try and give that feeling of what it was like, because it, it was a war zone, and it was just a tragic and an unfortunate end to uh, to to, you know, to what to the Trump's uh, presidency, and it's utterly and completely his responsibility, without question. I mean, just yeah, he was the one that that said that the election. Uh, had been stolen, and he had no evidence to support that at all.
0: And you speak to Mike Pence, and I assume it's in the days after. And it's almost like you can see—I mean, they're very, obviously very different men. Where you can see why Trump is popular to a certain group of people, when Pence just gives you sound bites, <laughs> you know, it's that pure, sure. just be, just straight away, you can see the politician just come in.
1: Sure, I, I think the, the the Pence interview is a very unique situation because. Um, you know, he he wasn't part of the story and the only reason we interviewed him is because there was this ability for us to get access and my sort of thought process was this is six days after january 6 right and the the most famous man in the world on that day is the vice president and just to see what he is looking like for three seconds on camera would be worth going and, and doing it right And not only do we get more than that, what we actually get is this remarkable moment where the Vice President receives an email live on on camera whilst we're filming him from the House of Representatives with the draft resolution that is telling him to invoke the 25th Amendment. And obviously, if he doesn't, they would start a second impeachment process against him. So to, to capture that moment is just obviously of immense value and... It's just an amazing thing to see his reaction to that email. So I hope people go and watch it and see what's, what, what does it look like when a vice president gets told by the House of Representatives to invoke the 25th Amendment because everyone thinks that the president has gone mad. I mean, that's just obviously completely incredible.
0: Before I let you go, you've kind of, I mean, from, from the interviews I've watched, I don't know if your opinion has changed, but I get the impression you don't think you'll run again because you've already done it. And everybody I've spoken to you know, again, former, administ- every, former administration people on both sides of the aisle, if that's what you want to call it, think he's going to run and think he's going to win. I've, I've said from about a year, I think it's going to be Ron DeSantis. I've, I just think he's, he's Trump without the boisterous Twitter stuff. And he will get stuff done for Republicans and now they have an alternative. I know you're not an expert on American politics, but do you have an inkling or a feeling that what you think will come next?
1: So I think, I think he will declare that he's running. I don't think he necessarily will end up running. This is obviously my own personal opinion. And, and my, my reasoning for that is because over the course of Donald Trump's life, whenever he has failed, he pivots to something else. He doesn't normally do the same thing again. And look, 2016 they obviously didn't know they were going to win. I mean, yeah, they they didn't know they were going to win and everyone knows that they didn't know they were going to win. So the reason they did it was obviously for other reasons, right, While they, when when they were actually running. So I think here it's like we have to win and we we, we may not, right? So that would be very difficult for him to be able to defend because it's all about the brand. The brand can't have defeat connected to it. So will he actually take the risk of running would be very interesting. It would be a departure from his normal approach. Uh, and, and you're right, I think Twitter and constant media attention is absolutely imperative for Trump. And I think that you know, he, the lack of social media is, is definitely going to be impactful. Everybody has been, I and mean, we can see. And just very quickly, that was one of the, 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 the moments I saw in Trump, where he was the most angry and the most depressed, was the lack of social media and he talks about it in the series where he refers to Facebook and Twitter as being thugs for that which I just thought was sort of fascinating the way that he articulated that so it absolutely has has hurt him for sure that that, the lack of being able to have that platform.
0: The documentary is remarkable Alex congratulations and To see you come together must be something special for you outside of the subpoenas and having to go talk to Congress to see you come together and be out there must be a big relief to you. So congratulations on it.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you.